0: What's up and welcome back to the TCP Podcast. This is Tyler Clark with TC Performance and I appreciate you guys for tuning back in again this week. I'm super excited for the guest. His name is Trevor Reagan. And what Trevor does really, really well is he breaks down the science of learning. And he makes it extremely digestible. And obviously, if you're an avid listener of this podcast, you know already I'm big about learning. I'm big about motor learning, skill acquisition, all these incredible things, especially how, how it pertains to skill development, player development, and sport in general. So Trevor isn't a basketball coach or a player development coach or anything like that, but it doesn't really matter. He's passionate about teaching people how to learn better and create better environments so it's more conducive to learning and he's worked with a plethora of different groups it could be a prison it could be an mlb team it could be a ceo company and they're trying to get better as a group to learn better it could be fifth graders he has coached some basketball camps that we talk about and it doesn't really matter who's in front of him he's just teaching them skills and going through exercises to increase their ability to learn and just providing more knowledge overall about the process of learning and how to do it more optimally and and again trevor does a phenomenal job of making it extremely digestible and i'm extremely excited for you guys to listen to this episode so without further ado trevor reagan What's up, everybody, and welcome back to the TCP Podcast. This is Tyler Clark with TC Performance, and I appreciate you guys for tuning back in. Super excited for this week's episode. I have Trevor Reagan on. Um, Trevor, I'd like you to just introduce yourself, and after the introduction, just give us a little bit about your why. So I
1: run a website called The Learner Lab, and what I try to do is take... I try to find the best science about how people learn and how we can do it better, and then distill it down so I can explain it to just like a normal person like you and I. So half of my time I spend with the researchers. And then the other half of my time is spent building out content, podcasts, videos, and doing workshops about the science of how people learn.
0: Awesome. And then what is the why behind doing
1: that? I think the why behind doing that is... um I've always been curious because like I come from a sports background and I think most people who are in that field always have a curiosity of like, okay, what could I do to get an edge or like, what could I do to get even better than I am? And so that's always been a part of who I am. And now that I'm in a position, obviously, like my sports career has been over for a long time. It's sort of like combining my passion for creating content and learning with this other side of the equation which is there's a ton of great science about how to practice better how to get better at learning and so my why is sort of bridging that helping people kind of take ownership over their own learning and development and explaining the science in a way that they can understand it and use it
0: absolutely i love it and i'm going to link all the podcast the mm. the the website and all that kind of good stuff for the listeners to listen to cool. themselves, but it's definitely been impactful for me. Um, and I appreciate the stuff that you do. Um, so like I told you a couple seconds ago, um, basketball audience um, and a lot of the stuff that I do is, is player development and team development. Mm-hmm. And a big aspect of that is building better learners. Mm-hmm. So you coined um, the term, or I believe that you coined the term zoo tiger and jungle tiger. Mm-hmm. Um, could you kind of just, Tell us a little bit about Zoo Tiger and Jungle Tiger and kind of like, what is what does that mean to you?
1: So this was probably at least 10 years ago. I'm doing a basketball camp and I had been studying like practice design for a few years. And there's a few like big ideas that we were trying to convey in this like workout. So we were ratcheting up the difficulty of some of the drills Not in like a way just to make players like be bad and mess up. But it's like, look, we we made some tweaks to this drill that made it harder. The players didn't like it because they weren't like scoring as many points as they were with the old drill. And it was like frustrating to them. And so I like had all this science, but I didn't know how to explain it. The school's mascot just so happened to be Tigers. And so I like went home. It was like a five-day camp. So after day one, I like went home and I was like, all right, how do I explain this science to them in a way that they could understand it? And then that's when the zoo tiger, jungle tiger, uh, like metaphor was born. And so the idea would be, it's just a simple comparison or just thought experiment that if you had a tiger that spent its whole life in the zoo and a tiger that spent its whole life in the jungle, they're obviously in two different environments, but in the end they have like, the same tools. They're both tigers. But if you're thinking about like which one of the two tigers is going to learn and develop more skills, it would obviously be the tiger in the wild. Most people would agree with that because it's pretty obvious. And then the way to prove the point would be, even if you're talking to a fifth grade student, it's like, what would happen if a tiger spent its whole life in the zoo and then you put it in the wild? And most people would agree. It's like, it's, it's in trouble. Okay. So it's clear that the tiger that spends its life in the wild is going to develop more relevant skills. Great. But then you go one layer underneath that. And especially when you're working with like younger athletes, this is a great conversation to have. It's like, okay, let's really compare these two environments. The zoo, super predictable, really easy. There's not like problems to solve in the cage. There's not change to deal with in the cage. So in a way, This environment in the zoo is easy, predictable, never changes, which means the zoo tiger never really experiences struggle at all. Okay, flip that and think about the life of the jungle tiger. Every day is kind of different. It has to find its food, water, and shelter all the time. It has to solve new problems day in and day out, which means if you're thinking about struggle, the jungle tiger is going to struggle much more than the zoo tiger would. So now you have these two kind of measurements and dynamics. Jungle tiger struggles more, zoo tiger struggles less. Jungle tiger learns more, zoo tiger learns less. And so what we're trying to illustrate is, yes, this tiger that spends its life in the wild, in the jungle develops more. But the reason why is because it spends its time dealing with the uncertainty and having to solve new problems and dealing with change. It's the environment that allows that tiger to develop more than the zoo tiger. Then the final layer is to just bring that metaphor into the real world. The whole idea about that comparison is it's an example of comfort zones. And the whole idea is if we spend Every minute of a practice session or every minute of a drill inside of our comfort zone where we're not experimenting with new things, where we're not having to solve problems. Yeah, it's going to be easy and fun and predictable and we look good, but spending our whole life in the comfort zone is essentially spending our life in the zoo. But we've already made it clear with the metaphor that that's not what we want to do if we want to grow. And so to connect it to the real world, it's The best news for you and I, and all the players we work with, is look, tigers are stuck. You're in the zoo, you're in the jungle, and that never changes. You and I, we have a choice in the matter, and we can choose to spend time outside of our comfort zone. We can choose to stretch out of our comfort zone and spend time in the jungle. And like the examples of that are all around us. Like anytime we choose to do the right thing and better thing for learning versus the easy and comfortable option. That's an example of jungle tigering. So literally asking a question at the end of practice, that's being a jungle tiger because it's more difficult to do that than to not ask the question. Uh, Playing one-on-one against someone who's a little bit better than you. That's an example of choosing to stretch out of your comfort zone. And so there's big and small examples of this all over the place. And what we're trying to make clear with not only the athletes we work with, but anyone that I work with, like I, I do a lot of work outside of sports, but we talk about the same stuff. When we take our learning seriously and understand the things that we need to do to get better at stuff, one piece of that learning equation is finding ways to stretch a little bit out of the comfort zone. It doesn't feel good when we do that, but when we have that metaphor and we're like, okay, just because this makes me feel weird... That doesn't mean I'm on the wrong path. That means I'm the jungle tiger right now, because just like the jungle tiger every day doesn't feel perfect all the time. It's not a mistake free life, but that life in that environment leads to growth and development. And so, yes, that's kind of like a long metaphor, but it is an important like pillar of the content. Um, that we touch on and not just like basketball camps, but with like the corporate workshops, I do a lot of workshops with like major league baseball teams. doesn't matter the group. We, we talk about
0: that pillar of learning and there are many
1: more, but that's a big one.
0: 100%. I, I love the metaphor because it's like you said, like so easy yeah. to just conceptualize for anybody. Um, and it could be a fifth grader, it could be a pro athlete.
1: If I wanted, if we wanted to add like one more layer to that from The sports side of the equation, it's when we play on Friday night with a scoreboard, with the jerseys on, that is, I would argue, the wild. That's no two games are alike. No two plays are alike. Like everyone knows that competes when it's an actual game. It's unpredictable. There's uncertainty. There's discomfort. There's challenges. There's problems to solve. So you can say the game is the wild. The problem is a lot of the time throughout the week, our practice resembles the zoo. So when we think about our drills and how we train and how we prepare for the game, a lot of it actually removes the uncertainty, removes the difficulty, removes the unpredictability. And so what we're essentially doing, and this isn't just in basketball, this is in like every sport. Monday through Thursday, we train in the zoo. And on Friday, we throw you into the jungle. And then we wonder why we're not like living up to, or we're not performing at the place that we thought we were at. Well, a big reason why is we spent four days in the zoo and then we threw you in the jungle. And then you kind of go through that side of the equation with most coaches and athletes and you go, so what do you think would be a better option? And pretty much everyone, if they're like being honest, would say we should probably spend a little more time in the jungle Monday through Thursday. And that's absolutely right. You don't have to spend every minute of every drill or every training session outside of your comfort zone. Of course not. But finding some space to do that in a in a like a controlled way is a really, really good idea if we want to be at our best on Friday when it matters.
0: Absolutely. Um, so bring up so many good points right there. Um, I kind of want to circle back to the zoo tiger and basically Mm -hmm. just saying like, we're training in the zoo to -hmm. perform in the jungle. And Mm -hmm. you see that, I I see that a lot. I'm sure obviously Mm -hmm. you've seen that a lot. So Mm -hmm. why, why do you think that is? And I think that it's interesting whenever you, whenever you bring up, like, how do you think you should prepare? Or like, if you do something Mm -hmm. in preparation for the game, a lot of coaches Mm -hmm. that might train in the zoo, so to speak. Mm-hmm. would concur with you and say like, yeah, like this would be good to prepare. However, mm-hmm. we resort back to the zoo. Is mm-hmm. that because fear? Or is that because like, what what are your thoughts on that? Why, why do we continue to stay in the zoo?
1: I think there's a lot of reasons, but maybe the biggest is it looks good and feels good. And so it, th- that's sort of like the catch 22 here. And if you want to go look at that through the lens of science, like a big sort of concept that smacked me in the face when I first learned it. Um, I don't know the originator of the research, but I first learned the lesson from Robert Bjork and he's like an awesome researcher at a UCLA. And he goes, people need to understand there's a difference between learning and performance. Performance is sort of what you see in the moment. So if it's like a student, like learning flashcards or even like what, if I'm taking a player through a training session or a drill, You could say like performance is like what I see now. And then learning is what shows up when the student is taking the exam, not during the study session, but what shows up during the exam. And then you could use the same idea with sports would be learning is what shows up in the game. So if you use that framework, you go, okay, performance is what I see during training. Learning is what I see in the game or later on or after the training here's the most difficult part of a lot of this developmental science. More times than not, the things that increase practice performance decrease overall learning. The things that decrease practice performance actually increase overall learning. Now there's nuance to that and there's like different ways that that can go, but more times than not, that's the dynamic we're working with. So it's like, you take this to basketball and you go, and I was guilty of this when I played in high school, it's I could spend 90 minutes shooting on the gun, the shooting machine with no defenders, uh, shooting a hundred shots from each spot before I moved to the next. And after a few years of doing that, dude, I could hit 80% of my threes doing that. But there, I would, if you take it back to like that that distinction, it's, that's a really good like practice performance score. And I could see that score rising over the years. It's when I first started messing around with the gun, I could maybe hit 60% of my threes from one spot. And by the time I was a senior in high school, I was in the 80s, 85, and sometimes even 90. My three-point shooting percentage in the game was 40 when I was a freshman and 40 when I was a senior. And so even though I was seeing Large gains during training, large practice performance scores, none of that really translated to the actual game. And so the actual learning was sort of minimal. I was getting good at shooting on the gun. I was not becoming a better shooter of a basketball in a game where there's that uncertainty and unpredictability. Um, I was spending a lot of lot of my time and practice in the zoo, and then those gains didn't really translate to the jungle.
0: Absolutely. And I think it's, I, I'm not sure if it's like a lack of, I don't want to say open-mindedness or I, I'm not sure what the term is, maybe education, but it, it seems like, you know, coaches will use the terms game-like or or yeah. go at game speed. And if you yeah. really break it down and you watch film or you just literally just watch a game, it's like, well, game mm-hmm. speed is like a very mm-hmm. <laughs> ambiguous term because game yeah. speed could be going zero percent. You could also be going 36 percent. So it's interesting whenever you bring up those kind of things. And it's like, we're kind of just
1: doing what we were taught. It's we know deep down, we know this. And when I was younger and first learned about this stuff, I was kind of an idiot. And I would like go in during workshops and it was mostly on the attack. It's basically like, look, everything we're doing is wrong. You need to do it like this. But what I've realized now, especially over the last five years, as as I like understand the science better, but even more importantly, thinking about how to apply it, we stumble upon these ideas a lot. And like, we see the results a lot. And to actually make a big change in our practice and training, it's not a total revamp of everything we do. A few small adjustments to the stuff we already do can make it better. And again, in a way, we're sort of fighting human nature here that, look, it's really fun to crank up the gun and shoot a 100 shots from one spot. And maybe there's some people in the gym watch me like make 80 of them. And I get like a lot of positive reinforcement. And that just feels good for me. It's like, yeah, that's pretty dope. If in that moment, you walked up to me during that session and said okay like that's impressive this next round though instead of a hundred shots from one spot i'm going to ask you to mix it up and so you receive the pass you can catch and shoot this first one maybe the next one is one dribble to the left and the next one is one dribble to the right the next one maybe uh i have to pass it to you you pass it back to me then i shoot it so like there's all sorts of ways that you could mix that up and if i did that I'm going to make fewer shots than the previous round. I just will. And so now again, I'm sacrificing my practice performance and that doesn't feel good. It's like, ah, oh, it felt so much better to make 85 versus 65. But you don't even have to be a basketball trainer to understand the value of that second iteration of the drill. Like you could ask my grandma, which one of those Uh, strategies is going to be better to prepare me for the game. And my grandma would say the second one. And then I would say, why? And she goes, well, you're just kind of getting used to like doing different things like you do in the game. It's like, yeah, that's basically what the science is saying. Now, sometimes I look back at maybe my old content And I was trying to push people like too far in that direction where it's like, yeah, you got to get out of your comfort zone to grow. And then we go off the rails and we make practice like too difficult, too hard, and we can't function. I think it's about like finding this sweet spot. It's understanding the value of introducing a bit more uncertainty to our practice, maybe a little bit more difficulty and understanding the value of spending a bit more time doing that. It's going to translate better to the actual game. and there's a lot of science that backs that up doesn't mean that there like we have to spend every minute making drills as hard as they could possibly be of course not but a bit more time um than we're doing is probably a good investment for most people
0: couldn't agree more um to go off of you mentioned it's like we're going to struggle. So it's going to suck yeah. sometimes, especially yeah. if you're sacrificing your performance in an environment like yeah. practice where you feel like you should be performing very well. Mm-hmm. So with that comes with having a positive mindset or at least some type of mindset to persevere and get through those struggling moments. Yeah. Um, could you talk to me a little bit about a growth mindset and just yep. how important that is to see kind of the positivity and Get through and kind of be a jungle tiger. I, I don't mm-hmm. see you kind of have to have a growth mindset in order to be a jungle tiger.
1: I'm with you. The good news is we've all done this in a different place. We've all done this. Exercise in one way or the other has done this. And if you think about what exercise is, it's struggling on purpose. Like literally that's what it is. No matter how you look at it. It's like, In track, I'm running farther and faster. I'm stretching out of the comfort zone to improve my speed and endurance. In the weight room, what do I do? I add weights to make it harder for me. And then what do I do when I can do like 12 reps comfortably? I add more weights. And so no matter how you look at it, exercise is literally struggling on purpose. Okay. Why are we so open to struggle in exercise? One, we know that that's how you grow your muscles i have to challenge my muscles in order to grow and so we're more open to adding weights and running farther and faster because we understand the value second it's not necessarily fun to struggle during exercise it's not doesn't feel good at all like the last 4 reps of a like a set of squats or bench press that doesn't feel good but I'm open to the struggle and discomfort because once again, I understand there's value to it. So again, we've all been sold on this idea that good, the right amount of struggle is a good idea if we're trying to get bigger, faster, and stronger. We are more open to doing it because we understand the value. And even when it feels kind of weird, we're still open to doing it because we know this is how I get stronger. Now, the problem is, All of those points are true when it comes to learning, but it's just like less well known and maybe less visible and less obvious. But those same rules apply. It's like when we teach people the value of like productive struggle when it comes to practice, they're more open to doing it because they understand this can help me get better. And that's the huge aha moment, if I'm being real, with our basketball camps that I had. For the first three years of doing the camps, I only understood the practice design science, like, hey, here's the things to do to make drills and practice better. And we would do these things. We would throw people out of their comfort zone, throw them into the jungle, and some would like do well, but most of the players didn't like it at all. And the aha moment I had is like, wait, we don't just need to build the perfect practice plan or the perfect drills. The other side of the equation is teaching the players why we're doing this. So it's not just this drill's scientifically better. It's like, hey, here's the science explained in a simplified way. And what we're trying to do is get players bought into like, look, when we make a drill harder, it's not just to mess you up and make you look bad. We're making this drill harder because it actually makes you better and faster and the improvements you make. Are more likely to show up on Friday, and so spending some time on the why, and then spending some time. This goes back to the question you asked on the mental side of learning is a really, really good idea. Mental side of learning, I think one easy low-hanging fruit for all of us is explaining the value of struggle when it comes to learning. So we do we do a good job in exercise, but like, like let's bring that to learning. Two is reminding everyone that we work with and it doesn't matter their age when a human is stretched out of their comfort zone it is no longer comfortable and that seems so obvious but that's really important to know that when i stretch you out of your comfort zone it's going to create a level of discomfort you're going to feel weird that does not mean you're doing something wrong. And that does not mean you're on the wrong path. You go back to the example of working out. Like If I didn't know that it's okay if my arms shake a little bit, like that's part of the muscles being fatigued. But if I didn't know that, I'd be like, "Uh oh, that's bad. That feels weird. I'm done. But because I know that that's the feeling of challenging my muscles, I'm more open to doing it. But we have to do the same thing with sort of the emotional discomfort that we feel when it comes to learning and remind people that just because this thing is making me feel a bit uncomfortable and weird doesn't mean I'm doing something wrong or that the drill is bad or that there's something wrong with me. So it's some people call that like giving people permission to feel and just reminding them that the the emotional side of this um, is very normal. And then the third layer is what you said, and I 100% agree. It's helping athletes and coaches and everyone understand the basics of what it means to have a growth mindset. There's a lot of different definitions out there. I think a lot of people make it out to be something that it's not. But at its core, a growth mindset is the simple but powerful belief that we can get better at stuff. And that's what it is. I believe I can get better at stuff. Big stuff, small stuff, doesn't matter. That's the core of a growth mindset. The opposite of that and the term that a lot of people use is called a fixed mindset, which would be the idea that I can't learn that skill. I can't figure out that drill. I can't play that position. Now, with those two definitions, you see that, look, in different situations in our lives, we might operate from one of those two mindsets, but the idea is And you said this, and you're right. If I'm going to get better at learning, if I'm going to jungle tiger, if I want to get the most out of my training and practice, it's a really good idea to understand what a growth mindset is and try to spend a little bit more time there. Now, just because you believe you can grow and learn stuff doesn't mean it happens overnight. And that doesn't mean you're going to be the best at everything you ever try to practice. But the research that backs up that belief system is strong. Um, and that's something that I've been trying to unpack for years now, which is, like I said, most people are familiar with what a growth mindset is, but what I've been trying to figure out for eight years is how do you build that though? So like, how do you actually help an athlete build a growth mindset? And it's not just me telling the athlete, Hey, you can grow. And there's all sorts of things you can do to foster and enhance more of a growth mindset. Um, but I think you nailed it in your question. It's a really, really important factor when it comes to like getting better at anything, not just learning, but just getting better at anything,
0: yeah. and it's it's a great question that you pose as well, like how do we how do we build that? Mm-hmm. Um, and y- you can see that that's a pretty consistent trait with athletes, CEOs, the like mm-hmm. the very successful people in the world, you know that they, they see a lot of losses. they see a lot of failures, but to their mindset and their perspective. It's like, they don't view that as the end. Mm -hmm. They view that as an opportunity to continue to grow. Um, and it's, it's powerful. It's very, and then combining the growth mindset with the,
1: the, the stress and discomfort piece, like that's huge. So like you, you're right. What you just said there, a lot of the most successful people, when they experience a setback, they find the opportunity to grow, they like stick with it, they try something new, and eventually they like overcome that obstacle and they're even better than they were before they experienced the setback. Well, a big part of that journey is being open to the discomfort because one, it doesn't feel good when you fail. Two during that process of experimentation and trial and error, there's a lot of uncertainty that doesn't feel good either. And so it's about that combo of believing that I can eventually figure this out in one way or the other, I can get better at this thing. And then two, I am open to the discomfort that comes with that journey of learning and growing and experimenting and getting better. Like both of those matter a lot. I would argue that those are the two most important
0: building blocks if you want to get better at learning. Um, now, say we are helping athletes, whoever d- doesn't have to just be athletes, kids in mm-hmm. school, um, whatever programs you're working with, kind of incorporate that growth, growth mindset and we're mm-hmm. building practices and all this good stuff. Now, uh, an important thing that I see that coaches struggle with as well is the feedback they use in mm-hmm. practices and in classrooms, if it's a mm-hmm. teacher, whatever the 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 environment may be. Can you talk to me a little bit about feedback and just the importance and what is what is good and maybe bad feedback as well?
1: Yeah, so this is a big topic and we have some videos out about it and some of the videos are pretty good, but I think they only touch on like the tip of the iceberg. And so this is something I've been working on in uh like backstage for a couple years now. I'm I'm trying to figure this out. Um it's not as polished as The Jungle Zoo Tiger, the stuff that we've already talked about. Like that stuff I've been fleshing out for 9 years and I think I'm good at explaining it. This is a little messier. I think let's just take it from the top. Feedback is really really important because one It is a strong signal of what is actually valued so a lot of people in leadership roles will tell their people like hey these are our values or these are the things that are important and so you see this a lot in sports you said it earlier it's like people will say like we're all about game speed we're about getting game reps we say stuff like that or we're all about like bouncing back when things get hard so we say what our values are great feedback is a magical moment to walk the walk. And feedback, again, is a strong signal of like, well, what is actually valued? If I only praise my people when things go well, think about the underlying signal that's being sent. I value you when you perform well. Great. Well, the truth is, all humans, we love getting positive feedback. Like That's human nature. We're probably not going to change that. So, okay, I'm in this system where I get most of my positive feedback or praise when I perform well. What is the easiest way to receive more of that praise? Do things that make me look good. (laughs) So it's like, okay, if I'm getting a lot of praise when I perform well, I want to go find the the, the, the most predictable and easy way to continue looking good. Well, if you've been listening to our conversation for the last 30 minutes, you see, like, that's kind of like pulling in opposite directions. And so then the idea is how could we, in our feedback, send a more powerful and important signal, which is I value you when you make choices and do things that help you grow and get better. And that's not always just choosing the easy way out. And that's not always just playing someone you know you can beat. How can I give positive feedback and reinforcement when I see someone make that little stretch out of their comfort zone and choose to jungle tiger? So can I give praise when I recognize these jungle tiger moments, even if they're small? So if a player does stay after practice and ask a question, it's like, yo, That's pretty cool that you did that. It's uncomfortable to ask questions like that. And I see you doing that. And not many people can do that. Like it's difficult. So you see, I'm rewarding the courageous act. This is not participation trophies or any of that, but I'm searching for these moments where people make that choice to stretch out of their comfort zone. And I'm valuing that. I'm praising that. I'm rewarding that. And then now I'm creating a system where the people around me feel valued when they do the things that help them grow, not just when they look great. So I would say that's probably framework number one is what is the underlying signal that's being sent with this feedback? You can go deeper there. And there's some good research by Amy Edmondson, and she's sort of like probably the best researcher on group learning environments, um, how to talk and think about failure when it comes to like group dynamics. And she she goes, a big part of creating a better learning environment is inviting action. So this is like, inviting action is creating an environment where we're stretching people out of their comfort zone. So inviting action might be, hey, uh, for this training session, We are going to play this team that's a little better than us. Or I brought in some older players. Or um, I'm going to change the rules of this drill to make it a little bit more difficult. I'm inviting action. Or if you're going on more of the the emotional and mental side of learning, inviting action could be as a trainer or coach. Hey, if you ever have a question about any of um, the drills that we do and why we do it, please come ask. That's inviting action. I'm inviting people to engage in learning behaviors. Okay, that's not rocket science. She goes, the piece that people mess up the most is how you respond to the action. That matters just as much as the invitation. And when she said that to me, man, it was on Zoom, like my head exploded because I think that is such a missing piece. So you think about sports, A lot of coaches will say, Hey, we value mistakes. We know struggle is important. We want you to get out of your comfort zone. And then a player does something out of their comfort zone and messes up. And what is our response more times than not usually a negative one. So it's like, I invited you to jungle tiger and invited you to engage in this behavior. But then my response to the behavior doesn't support the original invitation and you see this in the workplace too like you see it everywhere so again if we're like what does this mean for most coaches it's can my response align with the invitation if i'm asking people to jungle tiger and stretch out of their comfort zone and then when i see it happen i need to reward the courageous act but then this doesn't mean i'm like being fake nice with my people it's okay to give honest feedback it's okay to be like look Uh, In volleyball, it's like if we're working on like a new approach and swing, I'm asking you to stretch out of your comfort zone and then a player hits it into the net. Of course, that's not our goal. The player and me as the head coach, we don't want you to hit into the net, but I recognize the fact that you tried this new approach with this great arm swing. And just because you hit it in the net doesn't mean the rest of the stuff wasn't good. And again, I'm rewarding the rep. I'm rewarding the swing. I'm not rewarding you for hitting it into the net. I'm rewarding you for trying. And what's that going to do? It creates an environment where that player is more likely to take that swing again and again and again. And if they take that swing five times, nine times, 20 times, who knows? It depends on the player. Eventually they figure the skill out, but then you compare that to what you see a lot in Gyms at all levels, to be real, which is, hey, we want you to experiment with this new approach. They experiment with the new approach, the new swing, and they hit it into the net. And we go, don't hit it into the net. And then what do they do the next time? They revert back to the comfortable way because they don't want to hit it into the net and get yelled at. So again, it's like we invite this action. And then we have to respond properly. It's not being fake nice. It's not giving empty praise, but we're, we're rewarding the courageous act of trying something new. And we're encouraging more of that downstream.
0: Absolutely. I I try to, I mean, I, I started somewhere as well, just like anybody. And mm-hmm. the more that I learn, the better that I get as a coach and just yeah, as a leader in general with whoever I'm around, um, I mean, and that was a big thing for me. I, I would I would always reward like a nice made layup or a good jump shot, a good pass, yeah. which is yeah. great. And we need yeah. to do that. But 100%. at the same time, the more literature that I read and the more that I was exposed to some research, it's like, well, mm-hmm. let's reward the decisions that got yes. them there, even yes. if they didn't make the right yes. outcome or it didn't happen yes. correctly. And that's that's been a big shift for me as far as coaching. Yes. You can have a great process and a
1: bad outcome, and you can have a crappy process and a good outcome. And so it's just like understanding all the different dynamics of that and rewarding the right thing.
0: Absolutely. Um, some some books and just research that I've read as well, like just implicit versus explicit, um, mm-hmm. even like the the game of inner tennis, um, mm-hmm. that, that was been pretty impactful for me as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Rob Gray's book, How We Want to Learn to Move, just some stuff mm-hmm. that I've learned. He's, great. He's great. Yeah, Rob yeah. Gray is great. Um could you dive in a little bit from more of a specific like teaching maybe talking about technique um from an implicit versus explicit standpoint kind of the difference between those two and maybe your opinion on those as well. Like is there is there is there a time for both is it like what is what is the time and place for both of those? So that part I
1: it's like I understand kind of the basics And it was one of those things that, especially when I was doing like more of the camp stuff, I where I was at was, I think we can make, we only have five days. And I think that if we're doing all this other stuff right, maybe that would be another piece of the puzzle, but we don't have like time to do everything perfectly. So that wasn't something that I explored. That being said, I've heard a lot of people talk about it and I understand the value of it. Here's how we went about not actually talking about this research but trying to apply it in a like like a, a makeshift way and we saw some like benefits and so one was if we were going to teach players a new technique or skill almost always first we would find video footage of someone executing the skill properly So that could even be, if I'm working with middle schoolers, like it could be a video of LeBron or Kobe or something like that. Okay. And that's how we first started. And it's like, hey, look at this skill. But then I was like, okay, hold on. There's sometimes a disconnect here, which is if I'm an eighth grader and you're showing me a video of LeBron doing it, probably in my head, I'm like, that's great. Uh, I'm not LeBron. And so it's like, now I'm creating this gap of like, who I know I am and then this video and that seems weird. So then iteration one was, can we find footage of someone that is like a similar age to the group that we're working with? And think about the signal that's sending. It's like, oh, this other eighth grader is executing this move. And then that's sending the signal of like, oh, if they could do it, so could I. Okay, so that that's good. Then we go, can we find footage of someone executing that skill in a game and foster a discussion with the athletes about why do you think it would be impactful to build this skill? So they're kind of watching this footage, say like we're teaching seventh graders to shoot a floater. And so we have a bunch of clips where they see maybe shorter players getting off layups in traffic or people going really, really fast, but finishing with touch. So now you see I'm guiding this conversation where they're like, whoa, it seems like this is a good skill because you can get your shot off in traffic, even if there's taller people or I can finish with touch, even if I'm running fast. So now I'm giving them the why, but I'm kind of guiding them there. So that's layer one. Then we go. Can we break down that skill into three obvious keys, three skill keys of like what it is that's happening in that skill? And they can be very broad and very general. Now, when I first did that, we would let people talk about like body parts, and that goes into like the internal style of feedback. The, the change that we made after I learned about some of the science is like, okay, the skill keys we create can't be about body parts. Like, let's make it more external. And with some creativity, like they figured it out. And so that, again, was like my makeshift way of applying it. That being said, we saw a lot of upside in that whole process. Find video of someone really, really good. Find video of someone that looks like the group I'm working with. Find video of the skill being executed in the game so they see the importance and value of it. So now it's like, oh, I want to be good at this skill because I see the use case. And then also use the video footage to create the skill keys that it's like this, 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 which is describing what that skill is. So that's all like leading up to the skill and then we would allow players to go and experience in a really like controlled environment the ins and outs of the skill so let's just keep using the floater example like if we were doing this in camp we would let all the players like spend maybe five minutes alone at a hoop kind of like getting the ins and outs of like how does this feel like what does this look like and we'd be going around with an iPad like filming them so then they could get this visual feedback of like, okay, that's what it looked like during the example footage and this is what I look like. And we're helping them compare the two. They're getting like visual feedback here and they're just experimenting with it. After five minutes, when they know what it looks like and feels like, all we would do then, and again, if floater is an example, but you could do this with any skill, what we you do? Is move on with the training session and maybe for the rest of the session, the next hour or whatever, it's like anytime you shoot a floater in a drill, because we play a lot of like two on two, three on three, all sorts of different stuff. For the rest of the day, any floater is worth double points. That seems so small, but like we saw great We saw a lot of benefits to that process and it's not something that I've ever really shared before. I don't have a video about it, but that whole process was sweet, which is we're providing visual uh, cues. So the players know what it looks like and feels like we allow them to create the three skill keys. We allow them some time to mess around with it and then we're rewarding people trying it in fact in some levels it was like if you even shoot a floater it doesn't even need to go in you get one point if it goes in you get double points and so like we're creating this environment where we're encouraging people getting game-like reps of shooting floaters and it's just like it's really cool when you set it up that way and there's a lot of science that supports it um it's sort of like nailing all these pillars of learning and then you see it's like, whoa, all these players are shooting floaters in traffic now because one, they understand what the skill is. They understand why it's important. And now they're being rewarded for doing it because we're manipulating the rules or scoring system of the drills for the rest of the day.
0: Yeah, no, I love it. And I I, I use similar stuff in, in my yeah. practice as well. And it's kind of like the reasoning and the why behind it. it um, mm-hmm. is just like the self like the guided discovery and, and mm-hmm. the implicit learning is mm-hmm. it's it's impactful because when they figure it out so to speak in that moment and
1: mm-hmm. they
0: self-organize it's like now they have the ability to do that in a game without a coach having to tell them 100 and that's that's so applicable to you know other mm-hmm. things I, I haven't heard about you know people experiencing or sorry uh, implementing that into like a classroom or you know, a workshop for a, for a big company or anything like that, but I can see how still mm-hmm. guided discovery and yeah, implicit teaching and learning, it can be so valuable at all levels because you're learning yeah. it yourself and you're self-organizing and you have mm-hmm. to figure it out on the fly. So you don't, you're not dependent on somebody else's word.
1: And there's nothing like it, dude, just seeing a bunch of seventh graders learning this new skill Now they're encouraged to do it for the rest of the day. And they're all just shooting a bunch of floaters in game-like situations. And like some are missing and some aren't, but they're doing it a bunch. And now it's like, damn, in like two hours, you have this skill or at least a foundation to build on top of now. And we got there. And the way we got there is science backed. And I would argue it's way better than if we lined them up. And put them in lines and we're like, this is a floater. Do this. And just showed them a bunch of times and then moved on to the next skill, which is what you see a lot of.
0: Absolutely agree. And I I think that to go back to kind of why we zoo tiger as well is for coach the coaching aspect of things that, you know, what you did with that with that camp, that probably takes a lot more effort on your end yeah. and the other coaches that were involved 100%. rather yeah. than just being like, all right, let's throw the balls yeah. out getting two lines. This is what a floater is. That yeah. takes five minutes to you know describe mm-hmm. what that is, yeah. but it pays dividends. And, and I 100%. think that that's, the, that's the important
1: aspect of it. I'm with you. It, a lot of this is harder, but it's not impossible. And I, I just keep like a little bit of creativity and a little extra time, doesn't even have to be a lot, can make the drills and things that we're already doing much better, just like a little bit, whether it's adding an extra ball, manipulating the rules, shrinking down the lines. So like the way I think about it, if we're thinking about designing a training session or drill reps, engagement, focus, feedback reps, how can I increase the amount of reps and how can I increase the quality of the reps? Not hard things to do, but Three minutes thinking about that against most of the drills we do could make them a lot better. So, increase the quantity and quality of the reps more times than not. That's shrinking the court, adding a ball, adding an extra passer, whatever. Engagement, which is how do I keep this fun, but also useful? So, not just empty calorie fun, but like engaging and useful. Things like asking them why this skill is valuable, why they want to learn the thing. That, that Those are all ways of creating engagement. Focus is kind of going back to the example with floaters we just gave, which is, hey, our focus right now is floaters. We're still going to like play basketball and do all these other things. So there's all sorts of benefits, but we have a pretty concrete focus of what it is we're trying to get done. And then the feedback piece is, kind of goes back to your previous question, which is how am I giving high quality feedback during the session? How do I make that feedback visual when possible? Whether it's filming with my phone or iPad on a delay, like giving people good, high quality visual feedback. And so that's a framework that we created the last season of the camps. And this was a long time ago, but I would sit down with the coaches and we would use like that framework with every drill. It's like, R E F F. How do we increase the quality of the reps and the amount of reps increase the engagement, be clear on the focus and give really good feedback. And we would just kind of like analyze everything we did with that framework and try to
0: make it better. Great. I love that. Um, so those, that was kind of the meat and potatoes. Um, mm-hmm. I thought that was phenomenal. Uh, do you have like maybe five minutes to go through like a little speed round? Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 For sure. Awesome.
0: Um, so first question I want to ask is if you had to pinpoint maybe one book that was like the most impactful book could be any, any topic or author, whatever it is, if, if one book comes to mind, what what would that be?
1: I'm going to do two peak by Anders Ericsson and the war of art by Steven Pressfield. They're two very different ones and they're both really good.
0: Love it. Um, if there was one meal, you can only eat one meal for the rest of your life. What would that be?
1: Oh, I'm torn between Mexican or sushi, but probably just give me like great street tacos and I'm happy guy.
0: I, I cannot disagree with that. <laughs> um, if there was one place that you could spend the rest of your life in the entire world, where would that place be? Sydney, Australia. Interesting. I've actually, I've never been out of the country. I got to get out of the country. Um, Mm -hmm. and then let's go a little bit more philosophical. You can take as long as you want. Um, what in all the workshops that you've done in your life, what was the most impactful workshop individual, or like, just give me one of the most impactful experiences that you had.
1: Perfect. So it's 2000, 2017 or 18. I'm doing a workshop in a prison in Kansas. No, this one was West Virginia. Prison in West Virginia. We go for like two hours. There's 90 guys in the workshop. It goes well. We talked about building blocks of learning. A lot of the stuff that you and I just talked about. At the end of the session, eight guys come up to me and they invite me. They're like, hey, if you're not busy, can you hang out for another hour? We want to pick your brain and like learn more stuff. So I hang out with these guys for an hour and it's awesome. They're like, yeah, we're trying to build a library here. Like, what books do you think we should get in the library? Uh, They told me that they're setting up a shark tank uh, competition. So people on the inside can come up with business plans. And like, maybe these are things they could do when they're released from prison. And they were asking me about like the best ways to do that. They were trying to build out courses to teach people on the inside useful skills that they could use when they get released so they can have a better chance of staying out because they have like concrete skills. And of course, we talked about a a lot of the learning science there. So a really, really great hour, really curious guys thinking about like, how do we make it? How do we do things here better to help people on the inside? A guard comes up and it's time for me to go. And the guard escorts me out and he goes, do you know about those eight guys? And I didn't really know what he's talking about. I was like, what do you mean? He goes, those eight guys are in here for life and they're not getting released. I think about those eight guys like every day because they're in a terrible environment and they are literally stuck. They're there forever. And they're finding ways to be curious and learn and connect with the people around them to help other people get to do something that they'll never get to do, which is hopefully get out and stay out. And for them to do that in that environment, in the situation they're in, is one of the most unbelievable things that I've ever seen. And it's just, like I said, I think about them all the time. And it was one of the most impressive things I've ever seen in a workshop.
0: That's absolutely incredible. Um, awesome, man. I really appreciate your time. Uh, before you go, please plug away to anything that you have where where can people find you? Like I said, I'll I'll touch into the show notes as well.
1: Yeah. If go to thelearnerlab.com, that's my website. I think season four of our podcast is the best thing I've ever made. It's eight episodes. Each one's like 20 minutes. And it's with researchers that people don't know about, but should know about. And I think it's sweet. So season four of the Learner Lab podcast or thelearnerlab.com, both are good resources.
0: Absolutely. And like I said, I'll attach those to the show notes. And Trevor, I, I really appreciate your time, man. No problem.